welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Daph Lochran, and he is a surgeon by training, now CEO of Concentric Health, the market-leading digital consent to treatment application seeing rapid adoption, and I mean rapid adoption, to support the record surgical backlogs being seen across the world. Bit of trivia for you, myself and Daph previously worked together clinically in operating theatres in Wales, and so we have just been catching up off air, which I'm sure we're going to repeat a lot of now. Uh, So Daph, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. This is really long overdue, mate, but how are you? Thank you so much. Amazing to be here, and finally the opportunity for all of your listeners to hear how bad you were clinically and why you're doing this now. Uh, I often say that, uh, what is it? 50% of doctors are above average, but 100% of them think they are. And I think I have the self-awareness to realise that perhaps, perhaps I wasn't in that top 50% and um, um, my destiny was outside. But um Yeah, we work together, man. It's been, how long ago does that feel, by the way? Because it does not feel how long it actually was ago, if you're anything like me. Yeah, well, it was a long time ago. Up in, uh, it was was North Wales we worked together, wasn't it? It was, was in Wrexham. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, quality. Loved it. Um, Sharing an operating theatre. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think now, like, you must be the same as me, that some of your friends are now, like, becoming consultants and stuff, and they're like... One's the anaesthetist and one's the surgeon and they're just in the same room and you're like, I've seen you in second year of medical school (laughs) where this did not look like it was ever going to be a reality. And now you're just very competently hacking out organs of people and saving their lives. Like it's, it's, it's incredibly existential. I think seeing it, I don't know about you. Yeah, It's funny. It is funny how you kind of, and we, you know, we'll get into the kind of the the journey of the kind of the kind of clinical stories. But it is funny how you kind of almost freeze your um, kind of where you think you are in in seniority, and you you often kind of anchor so it, true. regardless of what you do after. You kind of anchor it as like I'm a registrar, and I'm always going to be kind of that kind of seniority. And yeah, you do realise that actually, you know, lots of the you know people you kind of talk to or email or in meetings with are actually the same age as you but they're consultants, but it kind of takes a little bit, bit of time to, to remind so, oh, yourself all this, that you kind of be, so would be true. there if you, if you hadn't done something different. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I've spoken about this on a previous episode as well, like dealing with my own feelings of failure, seeing my friends become consultants and things like that. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to bore everyone again with that. Um, I think it was Marla <laughs> Morkin I was talking with about that from the RSM's podcast. But anyway, uh, we digress already, mate. Um, yeah. Listen, like as I say, we worked together way back when, when technology and accelerators and leadership schemes and all of this was just a twinkle in my eye and, and probably yours too. And certainly being yeah. CEOs of companies, I never thought back then that we'd be sat here as that. And one thing we're talking about off air was was sort of being the, uh, the, su- the surprise founder. I think we both find ourselves in just people trying to solve problems. But yeah. I mean, that, that's a... It's a brief preview of your story, but um, I guess, mate, for, our, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you uh, tell us the long version? 
Yeah, so so the kind of story, and I sometimes describe this as the kind of story of a, of a thousand small decisions or kind of accidental decisions almost. So I basically, as a you know really early junior doctor, as a kind of foundation doctor, started you know just thinking you know can I solve little teeny tiny little problems in my own practice like one of them so there was kind of a few things I went to a few you know hack days and just hack days and that kind of stuff but one of them was that as an as an F2 so second year junior doctor uh actually it was probably in that in probably when we were together we were together when you so you were senior house officer and I was a, a foundation doctor um and I was um, doing an orthopedic job initially, and I was told, right, your job in this firm is to consent everyone for surgery. And I was like, God, I kind of vaguely know what a bone is, but not a huge <laughs> amount more than that. And suddenly I'm meant to be kind of explaining and having conversations with, you know, all sorts of people about all sorts of, all sorts of operations, which I maybe could just about say the name of the operation um which felt really uncomfortable and mm, plainly ridiculous to me so mm. you know one of the things i started building myself was the most basic web application of some information that i thought i should be sharing with patients when i was having these conversations like that was no way was that the kind of you know gold standard place we should get to but it was something that i could do to help myself have those conversations and therefore have more sensible and more valuable conversations with those patients Um, and that was basically like the start of this right so completely simple scenario where i wasn't comfortable having conversations so i thought how can i make that a little bit easier for me so then over the next couple of years I'd kind of, you know, as, as a junior doctor, you go from job to job and I would kind of say, okay, I'm now doing urology. And so I kind of want to build this database of information for for the things I talk about in urology. Uh, and so you kind of do this and people would, it was still at that time, this is kind of 2012, 2013, where actually it was still kind of unusual to have mobile phones on, on the ward. You didn't kind of... Yeah, it was. It was. It's kind of weird saying that now because it kind of sounds odd, doesn't it? But it, but yeah, having your phone out on the ward did bring questions of like, oh, what are you what are you doing on your phone? Um, there, there was still a kind of assumption that you couldn't be doing work on your phone. Uh, so I'd be like, oh, well, I've got this resource that I use in in terms of kind of consent information. And actually, lots of the juniors that I was working with and regis would be like, oh, that's that's super useful. Can we kind of use it or add some information to it for kind of people in our firms and that kind of stuff? And that's literally how how my kind of consent and shared decision-making kind of journey started. And that kind of clinical entrepreneur, which wasn't really a term back then, right, but what we now kind of think of as the, the clinical entrepreneur community was so small, so tiny, that even if you were just doing that, like people kind of knew that you were doing that um, and you'd be invited to you know startup schools and pitches and and all the kind of stuff that you absolutely did not do as a kind of med student or a you know medical trainee at that time now there's I mean it's kind of that's changed as well right so there's there's more of that kind of entrepreneurial com- community and there's more of the sort of innovation stuff in med school by now as well but you know coming through Cardiff med school 
you know, there's nothing, there's, at no point in that in, in my med school did I kind of think oh, I could be doing something in innovation. Like, even though I was kind of a bit techy and like playing with this kind of stuff, it, it never really, you know, I kind of played tennis through med school. I didn't do any innovation stuff. And just that exposure to the opportunity to be able to kind of just talk about something you're building or creating or have the experience of like meeting other people who are trying to like, you know, as you kind of said, like just solve problems, like not building businesses. That's not what we were kind of doing or thinking about. It was just like, I've got this problem. I would quite like to solve it for at least me, but maybe others. I don't know. And that was just enough to give just that kind of question mark in my mind to say, I kind of quite enjoyed some of that stuff. That was kind of interesting. That was a bit more flexible or creative, or I was allowed to kind of think a little bit in in in, in that kind of pocket of my life. Um, so I got to the point in kind of 2015, 2016. So I'd done kind of core training. So kind of four years post kind of post med school. And at that point I was like, uh, there's, there's a little, there's enough of it kind of niggling away saying, do I want to be doing something different? Which was, was actually quite a surprise to me, really. I was, you know, probably a year or two before that, I was very, very kind of, you know, down the line driven, that kind of individual, right? I kind of played international level tennis. I was kind of used to kind of, seeing a goal and like hitting you know hitting that and kind of running towards it and so it was kind of a little bit unusual and kind of uncomfortable for a little bit to say maybe this training path treadmill thing that I was pretty sure I was going to do I like did my surgical exams in you know January of F1 like as literally as fast as you could possibly do them as it were and then I was getting to this point where I was not you know thinking about doing something different so I had and I've kind of talked about this with, you know, in, in other settings. So I had some pretty uncomfortable conversations around that point with, uh, you know, people who should have been supportive. So uh, in the kind of UK medical space, they're kind of um, educational supervisors or training directors, the, the kind of people who are meant to support you along that, along that training path. And, you know, a couple of those conversations were, what the hell are you doing, Dav? Don't be ridiculous. Why are you wasting this? You know, why are you throwing this all away? And so I kind of stopped having those conversations, basically, and saw an opportunity to follow a, a path that I'd seen some chap called James do uh, a year or two <laughs> before. Did a kind of leadership fellowship or kind of, you know, there's a few very similar schemes around kind of leadership in, in the NHS, the kind of national medical director's roles or the kind of FL, FMLM programs. And that to me felt like a an opportunity to explore something different without without being needing to be brave enough to say you know clean line I'm doing something different I, I definitely wasn't the kind of person who was going to be able to do that kind of clean line so I you know took that little sidestep was phenomenally fortunate during that year to have a a supervisor who basically said you know, in that first coffee I had with him on the kind of first Wednesday morning, I'm interested to see, you know, where you take this as a year. There's this kind of project we'd notionally thought about kind of putting you on. Um, but actually, I'm interested to see what you do. So I was given amazing flexibility during that year to 
you know, explored lots of different surf, went and kind of, you know, spent time at, time at you know, various startups in London and other places. And, you know, that gave, you know, again, it was a kind of another little step that I took then. I was um, offered to go to Babylon Health as initially their, their kind of first AI fellow. Um, and, you know, in many ways, those kind of uncomfortable conversations I'd had, you know, 18 months before, actually a year a year later in that kind of sidestep, I kind of didn't need to have those conversations again. I didn't need to say that I wasn't coming back to the programme. I was just a little bit further out of people's gaze and, and view, and, and I could just kind of go and do this thing. And um, and interestingly, some conversations with, with some of those people I had tricky conversations with um, a few years later... <laughs> Uh, when we were more in a situation of, you know, them looking to introduce concentric as an example, which uh, <laughs> has a certain kind of irony. But um, but yeah, so I so I then went to to Babylon. Uh, amazing experience. You know, m- most of the listeners will uh, will kind of know of Babylon. You know, Babylon was it was an experience where I saw how a company could kind of grow and expand and what that kind of meant so I joined Babylon when we were kind of 80 or so people left uh, 18 months later or so and we were 800 people so kind of saw you know what does that mean for an organization how does that work and got a a feeling of like you know what what does this health tech stuff really mean at that kind of like you know, proper level. Where did I see myself as a clinician sitting within that? Um, and you know, in any of these spaces, there's lots of, you know, challenges around, you know, things that are kind of really patient focus, business focus, clinician focus. There's, you know, there's there's inevitably going to be challenges, and I don't, you know, I don't think I probably need to tell this group you know that Babylon causes controversy at times and and just you know just watching that from the inside was interesting right without you know posing any yeah. any critique or, or kind of further thought than that just just experiencing mm. that was super interesting and and um probably again kind of made me a little bit braver to go and do my own thing mm. so we kept chipping away at this kind of consent thing um we're aware partly because of that kind of organic growth of other clinicians saying, oh, that's kind of interesting, that's kind of useful, can we use that? And we were aware of, you know, there's lots of other issues around, you know, consent to treatment. There's like this paper consent form, which is like an A3 carbon copy consent form generally, and it's, you know, a whole load of issues with it. No one can read what's written on it. It's completely variable what people write. It doesn't really help patients. It doesn't help clinicians. It's really frustrating. It, you know, frustrating for clinicians. Doesn't help organisations. Loads of problems with it. And uh, you know, we kept. I kept uh, watching whether anyone came and kind of properly sort, like solved that little niche space, um, and no one really did. Um, and so, you know, eighteen months into the Babylon experience, we were given this amazing opportunity. Um, via an Innovate UK grant um, to go and and make it a real thing, to not just have it as this kind of aid memoir for clinicians, but to genuinely transform that consent process to support patients to, you know, engage in that decision making, you know, digitally transform that process and, you know, remote consent and all the remote pathways and stuff that's so much more in in focus today Um, and go and make, you know, make that a real thing. So that was kind of 
uh, early 2019. Um, first clinical use of that as a kind of product at, at Imperial in April 2020. And then a massive growth over the last you know, few months. So um, partly funded by lots of elective recovery money at the moment. Um, so we're now at the point where we've got just over 20 um, NHS trusts um, contracted, paying up kind of customers uh, using it across the trust. So it's supporting, uh, you know, projected over over half a million patients over the next 12 months to make these big, you know, big life-changing decisions. So, you know, we're finally getting to that point where we actually probably are having an impact. And I, I sometimes, you know, reflect on, you know, what's my individual, what's my personal impact in terms of healthcare and kind of try to to use that as a as a guiding principle of like why I should be doing this or you know versus something else versus you know being back in training and that kind of stuff and so I think we're now at the point where we probably genuinely not just myself but you know others in the team clinicians and and non-clinicians are can probably justifiably say that near enough or you know very soon we'll be having more impact than I think I would be as a as a kind of practicing surgeon within the NHS. That's awesome, man. I mean, what a story. There's loads I want to ask you about. I've made a load of notes here. The first thing was that you, that you mentioned international tennis. Now, this is interesting to me because I'm a very average club player. Very average club player in the first team, may I add. But I'm still a very average club player. So first of all, let's have a game of tennis and go yeah, 10 out of yeah. 10. And I want to see how badly you beat me. But it will be incredibly enjoyable for me. So... First of all, let's definitely get that. But the other thing that I would say about that is that there's something about people that excel, I think, because there's a, there's a, I think there's a lot of learning. And I remember way back when, when I started this podcast, I had a guy called Charlie from a company called Stylif on, and he was international tennis player as well. And he, he drew a lot of comparisons to, okay, not tennis and entrepreneurship. It can feel a bit glib, but like, there are certain feelings that you go through in the pursuit of greatness in sport. And there are certain challenges that you have to overcome. And there are cert- there's a certain feeling when you're love 40 down in a must win game for like the second set, which is going to take this into a third. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of feelings there that you can draw on when you're facing similar things in business, right? And it's obviously not just tennis, it's sport in general. I think learning that as a kid and learning that as a young adult and learning how to learning how to go through that, not only just in a game, but in the training that it requires, the mundaneness of just turning up and consistency and marginal gains and all these different things that you can learn in top level sport. I like I honestly think, surely, people that have learned how to excel in sport must be able to apply at least something towards business and entrepreneurship. So an incredibly loaded question now, unless you want to publicly tell me I'm wrong. But what did you learn in the pursuit of excellence in tennis that you think may or may not have applied later? Yeah, so I think I, 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 I'm definitely not not disagreeing. I think there's there's a number of things that forces you to learn in terms of, you know, so firstly, there's the binary of winning and losing. So... There's, losing, yeah, okay. losing. There's the, you know, you cannot play sport at any serious level without uh, losing. 
a, a decent amount of the time, right? And so that forces you to learn that. And and if you think about, you know, there, there are some other scenarios, you know, and I'm definitely thinking about it a little bit at the moment. I've so I've got a, a, a three and a half year old and a and a six week old, and you know, the three and a half year old is at that kind of phase where, you know, you're starting to have races with them or like you know practicing like catch and and stuff, and it's all this kind of thing of like. <laughs> You know, how much how much praise is the correct praise and I think there's and clearly that changes over time and it's it's all about kind of play initially and then kind of learning some of these like competitive skills later um but there is that thing of as you say so there's there's knowing how to lose and and knowing what that means so it's it's knowing that maybe that you know maybe that means I need to be better and get better and what does that mean so is that is that marginal gains is that you know, it's learning about kind of short term and medium term kind of goals. So it's saying, you know, do I want to get better for the next tournament and and try and win that? Or, you know, there, there are times in any kind of sporting journey where you where you say, do you know what, actually, I've, I I actually fundamentally need to change my, my serve or, or kind of how I, you know, I'm, I'm going to change to a single handed backhand or, or, or whatever you're doing that, you know, are not tomorrow solutions um and so i you know sport is clearly not not unique in that space but it does introduce you know that kind of thinking into your process maybe earlier than you know you you otherwise would do in your kind of you know childhood into adult life um and i think the same thing is you know for business you know in terms of like how we think about product and making things better you know there's always the kind of thing of like you know which which of the thousand fires do you put out today you know which which are the big fires which are the things you can leave there which are the which are the kind of big ticket items you want to say no one's going to notice we're going to we're doing this for six months but when it lands it's going to be you know amazing that it's you know suddenly i'm going to turn up to a tournament it's this amazing single-handed backhand that no no one knew i was kind of working on um, so there's definitely lots of lots of parallels like that, and I think you know particularly when we think about clinicians going into like business or health tech or kind of how, however you want to phrase it. Like here's a group of people who have been academically not necessarily brilliant, but pretty damn good to get into med school and yada yada yada. You know they've certainly never failed an exam in their life, um, and quite possibly have never failed an exam in med school. Um, and then, you know, for those who go into business, there's just a different number of challenges and and lots of little things that you're not going to win every everything, every little battle, you know, every little um, you know, decision that you make is not gonna not gonna be the right one. So I think learning that kind of failure and how you manage that failure yeah, I think I think sport has a big role to play in in that. Not exclusively, but if sport's your thing, I definitely think it's it's beneficial for that. Yeah, yeah. Because one thing that really comes out for me there is you strike me as someone that's very self aware, and I think one thing that you mentioned, if you're losing consistently, you look at yourself, and that seemed like an instinct for you there. You lose consistently, you look at yourself. What can I do differently? Is it the fact I've got no second serve? Is it that that every slice backhand's going long? Like you will just look at yourself, right? And and I think that that's really important because what I've learned in bootstrapping and 
and what I've done in the past and everything is that even applying for jobs and not getting them in medicine, as you say, it's these are the, these are times that you fail in your life. And I think I didn't I didn't have a, an excellence in sport background, so my first instinct was to just point fingers and blame and like blame other people. And you you realise very quickly that's getting me nowhere. That is li- quite literally getting me nowhere. You know, I oh, I don't want the feedback because like some random person is telling me I'm not good enough. They don't know me. It's like, well, actually, no, that's not going to, that, that's not actually going to move the needle. And particularly when you're trying to grow a business, you're not going to be very good at anything. You're certainly going to have no experience in anything. You know, I've talked to 250 entrepreneurs on this, on this podcast and, you know, I've, I've learned a fair amount listening to them, but I've never, I've still, I've got no experience. Like I've not built a massive business before. Like it's not, uh, so you have, but you have to look at yourself and think, what can I, what can I learn? What can I do differently? because this has to stop with me. The buck has to stop with me. And I think the quicker that you can get there, the better. And, oh man, I mean, no quicker learning ground than like losing a few games in a row for this exactly the same reason to, to make you just yeah. turn around on the training court and just work your hardest to figure it out. Yeah. And I, I, I just reflecting, I, I've just been watching the latest series of Drive to Survive on as in the, the Formula huh. One documentary on Netflix. And there's there's a, one of the episodes where, I think they're talking about Haas and... Nikki Jamazapin and talking about the kind of confidence that you have to have as a Formula One driver and you know this kind of if if my teammate kind of an interesting scenario where you've got two people with an exactly the same car um but mm. one's doing better like what does that like what does that mean and you as a Formula One driver like literally on the limits you kind of have to have the confidence that you are bloody good at this thing otherwise you're admitting that you're you don't have a bloody clue when you're driving something around at 200 miles an hour so you kind of there's this kind of thing where you have to have the confidence to think you're the best maybe Mm. Mm. but also kind of not um blind optimism is one thing i've heard that described as that i think is certainly it, yeah it's is it in the essential column for entrepreneurship i think at times it probably is it probably fleets from essential to nice to have you don't want that turning into anything too grandiose um and you certainly want the ability to critically appraise everything you're doing and retain that ability to critically appraise everything you're doing but i think there are times where it if you added up the statistics of everything you'd probably just never get going and i think you do at some point need a bit of blind optimism and you need to ignore a bit of feedback of that it's not going to work because and you do kind of just need to be optimistic to push through it yeah no i i I think i think that's absolutely right and and it's finding that balance which is super hard and and i think in terms of clinician journeys there's there's a, a particular dynamic there as well so i will you know, I would kind of think there's there's a spectrum between someone who's a clinician and someone who's like an out and out entrepreneur, um, and I kind of put myself somewhere in the middle there, probably slightly on the clinician side of the that kind of entrepreneur journey, but kind of have enough understanding of like, you know, business stuff and business acumen to to kind of, you know, do what I need to do in the business space, but uh, still kind of a clinician at heart. And I think you know in so many in in so many ways that's a huge benefit so i think you know the the you know trust that you gain by a being a clinician and b sounding and kind of empathizing and kind of feeling like a clinician um is super super powerful and probably outweighs being an amazing salesperson 
kind of in in the classic sense in you know in health tech and probably that's you know there's probably a certain you know that's probably more true in the kind of public sector you know nhs type of space than in a kind of b2c health tech kind of space so for 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 me i'm kind of don't don't worry too much about me not being this kind of you know wild extroverted you know an amazing talker who can just you know charmer whatever mm-hmm. you know that's kind of not me and you, you you have to kind of take that and and run with it and try and hold that as a as something that you see as a benefit even though if you went to business school they'd say like what are you doing like you look completely wrong you're like talking the wrong way why are you phrasing things like that why are you not kind of you know buying them chocolates every four seconds or you know whatever mm-hmm. i'm meant to be doing I get, I get it. I, I really do get it because I think a lot of that is about identity as well and about where you're comfortable as a CEO, as a salesperson, as, 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 as everything. And I think one thing that we struggle with massively is identity when we switch careers. And by we, I mean clinicians, and I don't mean just doctors there. I think when, when somebody that's worked as a healthcare professional goes in, goes into something else i think there is a huge amount of identity that is attached to that and and it's it's a real struggle and i think you i think for me it became about values as well and i wanted to i realized that one of the things i actually felt at home in medicine in were the values the values of putting other people above yourself the values of trying your hardest and doing everything that you can and integrity and honesty and trust and all all of these values which i realized when i left i just took for granted as like that's the workplace that is not the yeah. workplace that is not the business workplace and it's not the investment workplace and get people getting investment you, there are certain things that are said in meetings to get sales deals certain things that are said and I think you and I sound similar on that, that there's no, there's absolutely no way that I'm compromising my values in business because it will be impossible to live within my own skin and the own world that I've created because I can't, I can't live in that. I have to build a business on my own values. And if that slows me down, well, so be it. If that means I'm not going to be, as you say, the ridiculous entrepreneurial will say anything on stage to get another deal, like fine, I, I don't need that. I don't want that. That's not me. And I think I don't want that to put other people off as well. I, I think people should know that there are people like yourself, Daph, that have, you know, built multi-million pound businesses now on on good values. And I think that's really important. You do not have to be a terrible person to be a CEO and, and angry and mean to people and all this sort of stuff. And there are finally now, I think there are business champions that are coming out, you know, with YouTube channels and all the rest of it that are, that are, that are banging the drum on this a bit more. But I think... You know, for our little audience here, I think having someone like yourself come and talk about that as well, I think is is really nice. Yeah, and I think I think that that kind of you know that accidental entrepreneur is, I think, <laughs> a good kind of way of describing it. Like, it's you're you're an entrepreneur by virtue of where you've kind of you know what you're doing and what you're kind of trying to build. But it was not an explicit like decision. I I didn't go into this to say I want to make a you know multi million pound business that means that I can do X and Y and I'm worth X and Y. <laughs> like, like at no at no point in that journey do you is there any point where you go I'm going to be a business person. Like you just <laughs> you do something and then you're like oh well. well 
that's kind of interesting. I, I might try that for a bit. And then someone comes and offers you something and you go, that sounds quite interesting. I might do that for a bit. And, yeah. and then you just kind of learn and, and, and opportunities and, and you, you kind of end up in a place where you kind of, you know, you've got the same job, job title as someone who's approached it in a completely different way, but that doesn't mean you have, you have to do it in that different way. I think, you know, there's, you know, the, those kind of noisy types are the ones which you see. Um, and so the assumption is that you need to be like that. But there's loads of, you know, there's loads of like introverted, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are, you know, uh, who are building good businesses, whether that's bootstrapped or, you know, raising money or whatever, but they're doing it because they're working bloody hard and, yes, uh, you know, they're grafters and they get there and they make amazing products because of that, not because they're, mm. you know, on, on stage every, every day. Um, so, yeah, and, and I, I think in, in most cases, I probably prefer the businesses led by those kind of people but that's probably because i'm you know those 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 are the kind of my approach to it i suppose yeah one of the it's funny one of the motives behind somex when jess and i sat down with it originally was to say that why is it okay that those businesses where he or she that shouts loudest therefore gets all of the attention therefore the money flows in that direction is that okay? Is that benefiting the sector? And I think one of the things was, therefore, can we give a voice to people that aren't going to do this for themselves and aren't comfortable doing it for themselves? Can we as a company pull up the others that want to do that? Well, in that case, we need a pricing structure that can allow that. We need to be able to appeal to startups. We need to be able to do those yeah. things because otherwise... If, we're, if we just have packages at the top end, it's just going to be the pharma companies again. It's just going to be the scale-ups again. It's going to be the names that you know that come to us for that help. And so we had to say, it was you know it was, it was part of our like our earliest messaging, which is who are we for? Well, we're for everybody in the health tech sector. Well, in that case, we need a load of free products, this podcast, Health Tech Pigeon, this, that, and the other. We need also then the entry-level stuff that everybody can afford on the way to the bigger stuff because then we can be for everybody and then we can pull up the whole sector and we can choose who we work with and we can make sure that people align with our values and this, that, and the other. So, yeah, I love it, man. That's, uh, yeah, really well articulated. And one thing I want to ask you about, one more thing before we move on to talk about Concentric, is you mentioned the word bravery a lot. And that's interesting because that also aligns with how I used to think about things of, oh, these people are so brave, just like just taking a leap out of medicine. And you hear these phrases yeah. like taking the plunge into entrepreneurship and that kind of thing. When you talk about bravery, I'm interested. Do you mean that in the context of the bravery to be able to make a living and pay rent, the, behave, the, the, the bravery to change their identity, the bravery to disappoint their family and or the bravery to have that conversation with their spouse and their kids. When you talk about the bravery, what do you, what, what's, what's your framework there? Yeah. And I think it's probably, it's probably a, a bit of all of those things. Um, I think probably the, the main driving factor for me has been the bravery to have, have those conversations. I've probably kind of, 
so you know not from a not from a wealthy family but equally not from kind of a, a place where i would suddenly find myself on the streets if kind of something went wrong um so i sure the kind of financial bit is a kind of consideration um but i don't think it's been the kind of it's been it's not been the do or die kind of moment of like if i make this decision and and to be honest you know all of my decisions have not been those kind of things really you know so i went into that kind of leadership fellowship as a, a step you know i knew that I had a salary and i then went to babylon i knew that I had a salary um when we said yes. you know when we moved to concentric that was not um that was with a salary i haven't taken we haven't taken the approach of you know basically paying ourselves nothing and kind of holding all the value within the company we've we've taken the approach of saying you know people need money to live and have sensible lives and it's not just it's not all about making a, a load of cash so that you're f- fantastically wealthy in your 60s like it, it's it's like it's just so much more sustainable and sensible in my head to pay yourself a sensible salary um throughout that journey and yes that might change over time and that kind of stuff and, and yes there's you know in that kind of business context clearly there is the upside that something amazing in terms of like you know value could could happen but again it's not kind of it's not the kind of driving factor but uh, you know i i i haven't and probably by virtue of you know what we've talked about not being this kind of you know massive decision like you know bang 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 here's what i'm doing it's been kind of saying you know it, it's a it's a slightly more st- slow and steady path it's it's having a little bit more you know of a, of a more kind of traditional approach to like you know did we pay ourselves during that first year of considering, yeah, I paid paid us as kind of a pretty sensible salary. No issue with that. I've got no issue with that. Um, so yeah, for me, it was more um, more the bravery to have those conversations. Probably partly driven by uh, some of those kind of tricky conversations initially, where you find yourself defending doing something that's not normal. Just kind of sad, really. Yeah. Super interesting, man. However, you know, negotiating those conversations has led to where you are now, which is what I want to talk about with Concentric. We know where the ideas come from. We know where the MVP came from. We know your, well, I certainly know where you are now. It seems that things got going. And I can can actually remember when this happened because I, I remember thinking like, good for you. When I saw that Innovate grant come in, I was like, this is quality. Like, good for you because this is a problem that I saw and felt and knew of and you know probably one of the QI projects that was on a long list of them that I was going to get to at some point yeah <laughs> like yeah. I'm joking it wasn't but um it, you know it's in that bucket right of, of things just yeah, problems yeah. that we all had every bloody day like surely someone's gonna fix this <laughs> surely I was just never tacky enough to even attempt it but this this innovate grant in in 2019 seems to have catalyzed things. I think, you know, non-equity, non-dilutive funding comes into the company. You can now do things. Um, Talk to me about that Innovate grant. Talk to me what that did for you. Uh, And then I'm really interested practically what happens when that money hits the account and you need to do things now to start a company? Like what, what do you actually, what did you actually do? Yeah. Yeah, it's just on your kind of first point in terms of like, you know, one of the things on the audit list. And there are lots of these things in, in the kind of clinical world, right? So many. Um, they're not like, they're not like, 
hyper sexy things. They're like things that you go to every like mortality meeting uh, or like audit meeting and you know they're always discussed and there's always a problem and we've like we've done this and that and we've made stickers and all this kind of stuff and nothing's ever made a difference and you just sat there like in groundhog day um, <laughs> and there's just there's there are lots of those kind of things that are not going to make it into the times right about like mm. this amazing like thing that's changed but they are genuinely like important problems to even at that basically you know there's there's stuff that we're getting to in concentric now which are much more kind of in that kind of space but but even at its kind of basic like starting product space it's one of a number of things in that clinical world which sit under this radar of niggly annoying things that are at that niggly annoying level like for literally everyone like there's the, like as we talk now there's probably 10 consent presentations being done in the nhs like now i'm sure if you have a look on twitter you'll probably literally find you find yourself in the middle of those conversations yeah yeah um so so that was kind of that yeah so that absolutely that's the kind of that's the, the space we kind of started in and then actually getting the innovate grant is a is an interesting little story in itself so we um in kind of 20 14 and maybe 2016 or so put in um some reasonably small innovate uk UK grants kind of feasibility studies um at the kind of you know 50 60k type of mark um and didn't get either didn't get them and so then in 2018 we uh kind of were like well let's um go in for another another grant a grant kind of why not? I'd you know been in Babylon. There was kind of still no one had solved this kind of consent problem. Uh, let's see what happens. And there was a slightly bigger pot that we could go for, so we put in for a kind of project cost of five hundred k, which was three hundred fifty k as as kind of grant money. And the initial response from Innovate was, "No, you've already submitted two. You can't submit a third. Um, so at that point, easy option, leave it at that. Say." Ah, never mind. You know, we, we tried, but actually, we kind of went back to them, uh, convinced them that it was a, you know, there was enough that was different. It was bigger. It was kind of doing this and that and that, and kind of convinced them to, um, to, to accept the application first, and um, and then, as with some of these things, and it it kind of creates really weird moments of life. Um, at five thirty on a Friday evening in November 2018, <sighs> you literally just get an email saying you've been awarded grant funding. There was, there was no, um, so that was that was an example. So there's some that do have an interview, some that don't. That was a, that was one that didn't have a an interview. So literally we'd had this kind of battle to get them to accept an application. And then at half five on a Friday evening, an email saying, here's, you know, 350K of grant money go wow. and do this thing uh so yeah at that point there's you know wow. suddenly a, a bit of a, a a learning curve to be kind of worked out of like okay uh what do we do now um what does that mean uh so yeah so it's in practical um i mean clearly there's things around um you know setting up the business and, and lots of those practicalities are actually pretty light touch really isn't it like you know you pay a 12 quid and you give a company a name and you make sure that no one else has got the same name and you've 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 got a company right and so you're a founder because you paid 12 quid um 
it doesn't kind of mean anything really, does it? And you change your LinkedIn um, profile. That's that's the, that's the most important. Yeah, CEO yeah, yeah, and yeah, founder. Founder, yeah, founder, yeah, yeah, done, done. You can basically go go to the Bahamas at that point. Really. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we then kind of basically you know worked out what that meant. Um, hired you know a couple of the kind of key key people who I convinced convinced my brother to come back from London and be CTO, so being kind of kind of CTO at um, you know startups and then government agencies and you know technically architect and that kind of stuff so convinced him to go back and and do this thing which he'd kind of been um kind of on the peripheries of we kind of done little bits and, and you know he'd uh, been kind of part of that side project but clearly this was a, a, a much bigger thing right um and yeah so you know and and that's where it kind of started the, the one the one kind of challenge in terms of that grant stuff and we there's definitely interesting things around grant funding versus, you know, purely bootstrapping versus getting some kind of, um, you know, early, you know, investment from wherever. Um, and I think in lots of times these kind of niggly little clinical problems that aren't that you know super sexy, it's actually quite difficult to get angels to invest based on you know a really early scenario. So it's kind of tricky. Um, but you know the challenge that we had was that that innovate grant was paid quarterly in arrears, so you needed to work out um, uh, how do you fund how do you fund it so that you can get it back, um, which is definitely you know, you know one of my critiques of of some of those grants. So some of some of them are different. So we've got a couple of um, SBRI grants currently, which are the kind of another part of it so one of NHS England's kind of grant um, kind of arms so they actually take a slightly different approach they they pay up front and it's mu- it's much more conducive to kind of small businesses because that initial innovate grant we kind of found ways to solve it and you know some director's loans and, and that kind of stuff allowed us to to have a quarter you know have enough money to spend a quarter that we needed to really make sure we got it kind of very quickly. So, you know, first of first of April, I'd be there submitting our, our kind of quarterly spend so that we could make sure it bloody well landed, you know, pretty soon because there wasn't yeah. much, you know, there wasn't much more director's loan to be kind of had, as it were. And if you don't put more director's loan in and you don't spend it, you can't get it back. So it's a bit of a weird kind of chicken and egg. Um, but there, that being said, if you kind of get through that and get to the end, then... You, you know, we got to a point in the end of that grant, and actually, we had some COVID grant extensions on that, so we had a, kind of a little bit more money than that than the kind of initial bit. You know, you get to a point of you know, last autumn, basically, where we actually had to raise for the first time with a product mm-hmm. that was used in quite a few NHS trusts by then. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's so much, so much easier for the accidental entrepreneur to show. Hey, here's a product that actually works, and here's a you know a few hundred clinicians who use it and say this, rather than me <laughs> having this kind of you know amazing story that I can you know pitch from day one that it's going to revolutionise the world. Yeah, um, based on nothing. Yeah, totally, and it comes back to that integrity thing, doesn't it? And I think there's this there's this Silicon Valley narrative, move fast, break things, you know, big, bold story, like get people on board and yeah. Okay. Yes. It, it can work and does work. I think it, uh, less, less so with a variety of, of healthcare things. I think you're absolutely right because of the difficulty in, 
in uh, just penetrating the market. Just the the, dif- the difficulty of doing that. You need to be somewhat behind enemy lines for quite a while. Well, if you could pick the perfect entrepreneur, it would be someone that was behind enemy lines for a long time, i.e. behind mm-hmm. that door of a hospital that just knew how the whole thing worked and could build relationships with people, build trust, give them something to use for a little while and let them sell it to each other for a little while. And that yeah. kind of more measured, longer sort of seeping in osmosis approach of of yeah. actually putting a, pro- a product across loads of people to get loads of feedback. That's the way that you kind of would do it if you couldn't change yeah. anything about the way things were adopted. And I think you're absolutely right. It, it values those people that have been on that side of the fence to to do so, not least because they've been able to design it based on their own needs, but because they've literally had the trust of the individuals to then go and sell it. And I think, you know, one of the big things I can remember in accelerators is, you know, we just want to sell this everywhere. And it's like, well, and we want to do it quickly. It's like, well, one of the things we need to build is trust. And the, the thing is with, with healthcare, especially if you spell it selling into the NHS, like so much of this is done on trust. It's individuals. There's no such thing as the NHS. It's just a, an organization full of people. And mm. it's a person selling to a person. And if that person's worked, worked on that ward before, well, then the person buying it already knows, well, they've worked here. Like I knew Dave, like he was great. Like he did this, that, and the other. Like, you know, it's it, it's it's so much of that. And I think that you're right. You've got a few hundred clinicians using it based on based on a heck of a lot, lot of trust. Yeah, Daft, tell me tell me about Concentric. As it as it is now, tell me what you guys do. We know the story of how you how you built it and, yeah. and the problems that you're seeing, but yeah, tell me, tell me all, all bells and whistles. What what is it? And what's the user journey through it now? For whom and what does it do? Yeah, so at its most basic, so Concentric is taking that paper consent form. So if you've had any procedure, treatment, anything, you'd have um, had this kind of paper consent form that you'd have signed. It'll have had lots of squiggles that the clinician's written about, like what could go wrong, that kind of stuff. Um, And so at its most basic, Concentric takes that paper form and digitally kind of you know, digitizes it in inverted commas. Um, but clearly that allows us to do lots and lots of things. So A, it makes it really easy for us to share kind of personalized but trusted kind of evidence-based information at scale with lots of people. Um, it makes it kind of easier for the clinician in both in terms of that conversation and structures the conversation rather than have this kind of, you know, scenario like I had where I was like, oh, I don't really know what I'm meant to be talking about or I kind of, I know, I know what I'm meant to be saying, but it's super busy and I'm stressed and it's half seven and that person over there is telling me I need to be, you know, scrubbed in in six minutes. And so I'm kind of rushing and not having good quality conversations. So we kind of give that structure, but also take lots of those conversations out of those uh, or kind of, you know, the value of those conversations out of these kind of hyper stressed kind of quick conversations. And that might be, you know, in and out patient where scenario, we've got kind of 10 minutes to get everything across and then you're out. Or it might be, as is often the case, at you know, at half seven in the morning, you're already in your surgical gown, your your bottom's hanging out, you know, this is not the place to be having, you know, a good quality conversation about a big, you know, life changing event, decision, operation, whatever. Um so we, you know, do lots of things in terms of making it really accessible for patients to access that information you know, in, in consultations, but also outside, take some of that kind of process out of those um, kind of hyper stress scenarios. So, you know, remote consent so they can go and look at the information, digest that in their own time, consider it, share with others, you know, give consent when they're ready, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and obviously there's kind of other bits, you know, so, so I think one of the things that's nice from my perspective is that there has value for lots of different people. So from a, from a patient's perspective, it makes it much easier to engage with this decision, like actually kind of own that decision and, and know that it's the right thing for them. From a clinician perspective, as we've kind of talked about, it's like one of these really like niggly, annoying problems that you've, you know, it annoys you on a daily basis. It annoys your team on a daily basis. Like, so we, you know, make that feel like a positive, like 21st century consumer type experience to, to go through that process. Um, and then there's other things from a kind of organization perspective. So it's clearly a pretty kind of litigious space around consent and you know things have been omitted from being discussed and, and that kind of stuff so we you know as with any digital thing so this is no this is no magic right it's it, you know gives that order trail of exactly what's happened what's been shared who's accessed what and um, so you you know robustly um what has happened and that you know that the product has supported that that journey th- throughout it so that's kind of that you know that's what we do um now used as a you know 20 or so nhs trusts um as well as you know private clinics and um definitely still currently a you know majority uk focus and majority kind of public sector focus um but that's kind of not not for any kind of particular reason except that's just the the, the kind of the space it has grown organically in over the last you know two years um but clearly we'd love to do you know more stuff internationally and more stuff in the private sector um and there's you know there's opportunities in terms of future things so you know the things on our on our on our kind of medium term longer term vision is is that there's an opportunity to take us from this kind of space of here's at a population level what you know the, the outcomes are likely to be for you based on you know published literature and that, that kind of stuff to actually understanding outcomes for that for those patients and you know and doing some you know ml type stuff to say okay so based on you and what we know about you this is more accurately what you should expect from you know from your outcomes and there's opportunities you know a you know this is a really sticky point in the journey so it's an opportunity to 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 kind of collect some of that data or collect some of the variables that would enable you to do some of that um uh, you know some of that work that generally is just not collected you know um, you know, in healthcare journeys in the NHS or, or elsewhere, and then we also see lots of people coming back to Concentric after. Um, so it's kind of one of the surprising themes for me is that we see loads of patients coming back to their Concentric information after an operation to kind of understand, you know, yes. should I be expecting that? Should I be seeing this? And so that gives us a, a really, you know, an easy opportunity then to to collect outcomes from those patients at those times, both to dry, you know, both to support their own recovery, um, but also to you know, support the next people coming through that journey so that's the kind of you know that's the bigger picture space around around data and, and the kind of more sexy stuff but what's nice is that we can know that that's an opportunity and we can see um so yeah th- that's the kind of nice thing from a product perspective is that you've that there is this product that delivers value today and there's a really obvious path to doing the kind of you know sexier kind of stuff down the line just it's you know again this kind of stepwise not cautious but kind of slightly cautious approach to things rather than this like you know i don't think i could ever really build a business where i was saying this isn't going to give deliver any value for 10 years but at 10 years it might become this you know unicorn massive thing it's just kind of not me yeah i think you and i are similar on that definitely and i i really like i really like this it's sort of how shall i how shall i phrase this 
what I want to say is it's meaningful data collection. You've already got the value in mind. You're not just arbitrarily collecting data. It's just data that's presented itself to you because it's already valuable to the person in that they, so they are inherently seeing the value of giving it to you. And then you're thinking, well, how can I now make it more valuable to them? Which I think is super interesting. It's again, it's it's sort of like <laughs> like free range ethical data, um, mm-hmm. which is kind which is kind of nice. But yeah, and, and I think it, it strikes me that if you are feeling there might be value here, there probably is, and it does. Yeah, it it, 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 and it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of to use an audit term, closing the loop element as well, and I, I, I that I enjoy of. Yeah, they're they're coming back and they're just sort of reporting their side effects to you. And you're like, well, there's a loop to be closed here. There's then a fuller story. And how valuable is that to those organizations or those individual clinicians even? Like if they want to critique their own patient list performance or whatever, or those organizations want to say, well, what side effects do we need to, you know, think about more so? Or how do we improve the, the system more generally? Is there something about the recovery that we could do differently? And you know, there's like there's loads, right? There's there's loads, and I think, yeah, a lot of value to be to be felt. Seemingly, you know, for for me, it's product driven, like data. Right? It's not it's not collecting yes. data and kind of just working out like it's it's not kind of yeah, it's not collecting data and then working out what you what you can do with it. It's saying like here's like here's here's a product. We know that currently, based on the the, the knowledge in the world we most of the time have to present population kind of data. And if I was having a total hip replacement in 20 years time, I'd probably kind of want to know, like, what, what are my outcomes like, likely to be compared to James who's, you know, sat in his chair for the last 30 years doing SOMAX, like, you know, and yeah. you know, my outcomes are clearly going to be completely different to his at this point. I'd like to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, just that, you know, there's that personal value and, yeah, Clearly, there's there's other things that you can you can find value from that, and there's a kind of that ethical you know ladder between you know okay so we can use that to predict things on a patient level or, or kind of show that data on a patient on, on that own patient level fine very clear like there's no con- controversy mm-hmm. there and then you can you know show that at a kind of you know you know do some models to to show that kind of data to the next people coming through. Okay, it's probably, you know, it's still kind of direct care. You can definitely buy that. There's like insights to an organization, that organization, probably pretty, pretty clear. Other organizations probably kind of still just about get there. And then there's, you know, do you then say, okay, we're seeing a signal in this data around, you know, this complication in this kind of cohort that might be interesting to you as a, as a kind of university to explore. Okay, I can kind of buy that, um, and then there's you know you just kind of go along that journey to and and at any point in that journey you say, you know what am I comfortable with? Am I comfortable with mm. you know showing that signal of data to pharma or Medtronic or you know you know medical mm. device company? And I think that's you know you just have to take each decision at a time and say like what's what's appropriate here, um, without taking. You know, it comes back to that kind of value stuff of not just saying, can I make money from that? The answer is usually yes to most of the questions. One last thing I want to talk to you about before we start wrapping this up is 
the concept of timing because there's one thing having an idea there's one thing starting a company and getting a grant and building out a few people in the team it's a whole nother thing when all the stars seem to align uh, in what seems to be almost perfect timing now there's the sort of morbid perfect timing of we had a global pandemic and a hell of a lot of backlog um, but then thankfully people like yourselves around to help speed up that journey and elective recovery funds and things like that but there was also there was also one I saw specifically on consent I believe or was it it was it was hyper relevant to you guys and I remember seeing it being like have they built this around daff like, <laughs> they literally just rang him and gone like what's the perfect tender and like just send me like your product details because <laughs> it was just like hilariously close to what you guys do and I think this is the thing right there's always an element of luck when it comes to building a company and often you make your own luck and I talk about that a lot on this podcast you've got to be in the right place at the right time you've got to bowl line and length to you know to get a wicket another sporting analogy but you know at some point we all have to be lucky and and you hear so often are they were just before their time and that kind of thing it seems like you guys right place right time right solution right problems you know right funds right tenders it seems that the timing's been good for you guys yeah, so de- I mean, so we've definitely been super lucky, right? So you know, if if we hadn't had a global pandemic, would we be in the position we are now in terms of like trust and stuff? No, like clearly there was like that. Mm. You know, a, there was basically like a day in March where surgeons were like calling us saying, "I've just been asked to go and do my clinics remotely, and I'm sitting here with a." consent form that i can't get my patient to sign like it was like literally yeah. that like obvious like no one needs to go the value proposition literally being communicated to you by the customer <laughs> you know, there's there's so there's also the element of competition right so so if you look at if you look at that example which was a um, that you mentioned which was an interest england adoption fund you know pot of money for trusts to say we, we really want to like accelerate and be the like, exemplars in like digital consent and pre-operative um, assessment stuff. It was like literally that tight. And if there was only us doing digital consent, they would not have been able to do that. Right? So you need, like there's, there, I think my approach to competitors has changed so much over the last two years. So like two years ago, you'd see every little thing that a, like someone did or kind of mentioned consent or like sniffed around or like you'd be super worried. Actually, like having a group of competitors, like a you know the obvious thing about it, like it means it must there must be a market, but also it just means mm. that that market is way easier, right? So a it's not you just one random guy shouting from the rooftops, like there's a cohort of people, meaning that it's this thing is probably on more people's radar, and also it means that like things like that grant stuff, like they if there was only one product in the space, like like anxious england can't go out and say like here's funding for this product place like they just would they, like they wouldn't been able to do it but because there was two or three they can do that and it it, it drives it so and also it's like it's it's internal motivation isn't it? like if you're the only person doing this mm. like in a product space and you can you can imagine it being much easier to be kind of complacent because like competitors just drive you same sporting stuff right if you're winning every day if you're winning every tennis match why the hell get better like what's the point um 
so yeah, a lot a lot to be said for for competitors and kind of creating a product space. Like this wasn't a product space two years ago, but it is now. And part mm. part of that is us, and part of it's not us. But it, but it benefits us all. Mm. Love you doing my job for me and bringing it back full circle to something we spoke about right at the start. You're a natural podcast host, Daph. If you want to <laughs> start a podcast, let me know. I'm sure, we can do something at some. <laughs> so. So here we are now, right? You're in, what, 20-odd different trusts and goodness knows private clinics and all, all sorts of different things, individual clinicians probably. There's there's loads of people using this. The future looks bright with more insights, data science, that kind of thing, predictions, analytics, et cetera, et cetera. The accidental entrepreneur finds himself with you know, arguably multi-million pound revenues in a company that could grow to whatever size. What's what's next? What's what do you what do you want? What do you want personally from from this? What impact do you want to have? How do you define impact? I mean you've talked about impact a few times of it seems to be like you're measuring yourself up against the potential DAF that stayed in clinical practice as well. It seems like yeah. that's a that's a theme for you, which is interesting. Yeah. But what yeah, what are you what are you looking for out of this now with with impact of the company and impact of what you want to do perhaps beyond if you were to exit and things like that? What's yeah, what's what's driving you at this point and possibly in the future? Yeah, so it's interesting. And I think the accidental entrepreneur probably doesn't do as much kind of future scoping of like thinking as, as maybe you think they would. So for me, the focus, I mean, I probably, you know, I don't really apologize for that focus is saying at this point in time, what do we need to do? Well, we need to get more scale. At the, at the moment we're talking, you know, a small percentage of patients going through like NHS trusts, like public sector in the UK. So if we think, if we're convinced that that is delivering value, then there, there's, there's a decent number of markets where we can be pretty sure that we can deliver the same kind of value across across that. So, you know, f- from my perspective, why would you why would you lose that focus until you've, you know, maximised the, the the impact that you can from this product that you've built? Like, why would I go to the next shiny thing, um, until you know and, and with any of these kind of impact things there's like this there's a flat bit where you're having no impact on anyone because you're like building or there's you know just your grands using it or you know, whatever and then there's <laughs> you know there's a curve where you're you're growing and you know all that kind of stuff and then there's probably a plateau where you're saying you know we've kind of diluted market and and now we're just adding features that we kind of want to do or some random person has asked for and so we're kind of doing it but it's probably not doing anything and that you know at that point yes find something different or say actually i'm i you know i'm i've shown that i can build something that is sensible and you know delivers value so there must be some other space you know other things but i'm not uh, I'm not someone who has this like long list of things of like, okay, I'm going to be a serial entrepreneur and this is the first one. And then, uh, oh, I can't wait to get onto number six and seven and eight because they're bloody good ideas. You know, we're, we're still super early in that, in that, in that curve of, you know, impact. We're definitely you know, nowhere near that plateau. So why, why lose that focus? Why, why worry too much about what's next? That's such a good, such a good answer, mate. And again, like there's so much about our journeys that relate, like I relate to you so much. Like when you said that you don't do as much future scoping as, uh, as one might expect you to, do you know what? 
even when I know a client is a new client is coming in and they're starting in two months' time, I have a hard time adding them to the forecast sheet and going like, well, what if we got another one in another two months' time and then another one in another two months' time? And I, I, and I don't do that because I'm like, that's not that's not even worth thinking about because we're here now and that's that's just how I see it and I and you know that's what I'm going to project on and all the rest of it. It's only through literally like being counselled on this like a lot by. Ross, who's you know one of my friends, but corporate finance, etc., and NED for us now. It's like, no, no, you actually have to do this, mate. You actually have to think, what if things go extremely well now? Because yeah. otherwise, if they are going to go extremely well, and you're not going to have planned for it, and then 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 they're not going to go as well. So that plateau that you're seeing might turn into a dip. And so <laughs> yeah. let's yeah. think about the let's go. Yes, if everything happens now, and we onboard a new client a month, which is our maximum because we don't we heavily heavily over service in the first month and don't want to <laughs> screw ourselves too quickly and have crazy growth <laughs> but like <laughs> but yeah like let's model it let's model like a new client a month for the next 12 months and like what does that do and you're like oh my god this is no 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 i need to protect the quality of my products <laughs> everything goes out of control at that size uh so i get it i i i get you i yeah i i struggle to there's something about the opposite of blind optimism as well of like not blind pessimism but still like blind realism of like let's be real here you could get five emails in a row and have five less clients and you know that kind of stuff but no i get it i get it this stuff is this stuff is all on a spectrum right so it's so so you kind of it's about knowing where you are on that spectrum and knowing what that means in terms of blind spots so if you have you know, some awareness mm. that this is kind of my, this is my general default approach to this kind of stuff. And that means that, you know, I'm m- more likely than another person to miss this kind of golden nugget opportunity that could mean a, like 100x opportunity. And so, you know, at some point in that scaling journey, you start saying, okay, well, you know, this is not just about me and my take on this. It's about, you know, everyone around us and and kind of plugging those blind spots between you without putting the pressure on yourself that you have to do that you have to be that kind of perfect you know realist plus optimist plus golden nugget finder oh i love it man listen I, i've thoroughly enjoyed this i i knew it was going to be good like getting you back on i mean, obviously we're friends aren't we so mate as i say absolute absolute pleasure having you on thanks thanks so much um if people want to learn more about you, about Concentric, they might want to get in touch with you and they, they might feel like they're an accidental entrepreneur too or they want to be. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you and or Concentric Health? Yeah, so absolutely just reach out to me. So I'm at dav, D-A-F, at concentric.health. Um, yeah, just get in touch, you know, as, as I hope I've kind of shown in this chat, you know, I, I, I get some of those kind of, difficult conversations and you know thoughts of do i want to do this or that and so yeah just just get in touch hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content